0: Welcome to episode 64 of Paper Talk, a monthly series of podcast interviews featuring artists and professionals who are working in the field of hand papermaking and paper art. I'm Helen Hebert, and I run Helen Hebert's Studio, a hand papermaking studio in Colorado's Rocky Mountains, where I create artist books and installations. I also host the annual Cliff Paper Retreat and Papermaking Masterclasses here in the studio, and I teach online classes about paper, light, and books, too. Find out more at HelenHebertStudio.com. Today, I'm talking with Meg Black, an artist and art historian who studies historical works of art and connects her work to the great artists who have come down to us through the ages. The subject of her work is nature and its impact on our sensory experience, and she studies how artists have recorded nature and considers these approaches in her own designs. She doesn't try to copy the natural world as she sees it, but rather as she feels it. Black's paintings and wall reliefs are made with abaca, a fiber that she is constantly discovering the potential for and is challenged by. She finds that the texture of this material provides an almost three-dimensional quality to the surface of her work, mimicking nature in all its splendor. We talk about how she discovered papermaking in college, how she was the first intern at the Women's Studio Workshop, the evolution of her pulp paintings and how she sells her work through galleries and art consultants. Enjoy our conversation. Meg Black, welcome to Paper Talk. It's lovely to meet you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, so um, I'm looking forward to talking all about your journey with paper and your using paper as a painting medium. so uh, tell me a little bit about where you grew up and any artistic influences in childhood.
1: Okay, sure. I actually didn't have too many direct artistic experiences as a child. I, I hate to paint my parents as Philistines, but they were business people. They really were not involved with the arts. So mm-hmm. my experiences are pre- pretty limited. I loved to read. I read every Nancy Drew book, you know, and then some. And then I moved on to Agatha Christie's. I rode my bike everywhere. I would just get on my bike and go for hours and just figure out how to get home. And where was this? this was, I'm sorry. This was in Syracuse, New York in okay. the 70s. You can tell kids going off on bikes for 10 hours and then coming home and nobody really cared. That yeah, we're thing. a similar age, I think. That <laughs> <laughs> yeah, was pretty good. It was, it was the time to be a kid on a bike. Mm-hmm. And then there was a few things, though. My sixth grade art teacher, again, the 70s, scheduled a happening at the Everson Museum of Art in Syracuse. And that was one of Ian Pei's first designs, very famous uh-huh. early design of Ian Pei. And a happening, for those who don't know, is like a performance art piece. I mean, I think we, we eventually started calling it performance art. But what a thing to do for an, a sixth grade art teacher. She had sixth graders on the stage of the Everson Museum doing this like um, live presentation and we're going in and out of the stage. I'm sure it was completely bizarre, but it really stuck with me that we had this, pre- this um, experience. I just loved it. Uh-huh. And then in eighth grade, I, I won a poster contest for the Bicentennial. That was in 1976. And I took cake decorating classes on my own accord. My first job was going to be a chef. I was going to be a pastry chef. But I didn't take art classes till high school, to my senior year of high school. So I kind of break the mold. I mean, most people who are artists, they, they can tell you they st- started with art very early. Mm-hmm. But I was from a business family. And I think that's why I didn't really know there was this issue with commerce and creativity growing mm-hmm. up. I only understood commerce. And I was going to apply it to creativity. So I didn't know that there was a philosophical divide between those two, which probably in the long run served my purposes.
0: Yeah. And what kind of business was, were your parents in?
1: Yeah, my dad was a stockbroker, which was okay. a very old-fashioned stockbroker. He would drive around and ring doorbells trying to sell stock. Okay? Oh, so wow. it's not like today's financial advisor. It was a very different thing.
0: Uh-huh. And then
1: my mom was a hospital administrator. She was in charge of budgeting. And okay. buying, and selling things for the hospital. So, either it's genetic, or, in, or my in, in my DNA, DNA, or we just had a lot of conversations around the kitchen table that I picked up on. But that became my business ends of things as I was, you know, reading my bikes, reading my books, and riding my bike. And then over time, they, they merged. I think I think I can safely say that's what happened.
0: Uh huh. Uh huh. And so you mentioned your senior year,
1: or high school. Yeah. Of high school. So I started taking art classes in my senior year of high school. I just, I always, I used to walk by the art room and think, oh, those kids look like they're just loving it. And I wanted to be one of those cool kids, right? Mm -hmm. But I was too busy taking classes, you know, for college, what have you. And so finally, my senior year, I had time to take art. And I was so nervous going into their room. I still remember it.
0: Uh-huh. And at
1: first, of course, my attempts were nothing so great. But eventually I started copying album covers, which is something a lot of kids will do. And there's, in art education, you know, circles, there, there's, a, there's pros and cons to that idea. But that's where I really started switching on the idea of drawing and copying things from one source to another, And I just loved it. So even though I started college as a chef, within weeks, I switched my major to art. Ah,
0: and so So where did you go to college?
1: I started, I I went to SUNY School, State University of New York. I started at a two-year school in Cobleskill, and I only went for a semester because once I switched to art, I had to go to a different school. They really didn't have an art major. So I went to State University of New York at Oswego. Um, our most famous alumni is Al Roker. <laughs> it's our <laughs> only famous alumni, really. But yeah, that's where he went to school. Every now and then we will show up with his Oswego stage uh, sweatshirt on TV.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: but I had a very formal education, which again, I think really served me well. It, meaning I learned drawing, painting, design, and art history, and not much else. But for me, that digging deep into very little offering really worked because we spent four years figure drawing. We spent four years drawing. We spent three years on design. We spent three years on, pay- on printmaking. And it was during my stint in printmaking that I stumbled onto papermaking. Uh huh. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I read that you were using a garbage disposal to make pulp. So tell me that. Tell that story. <laughs> Isn't that terrifying? <laughs> no, I've done that. I mean, people, yeah, that is a thing.
1: It's a thing. And yeah. it, this was so pre because using a garbage disposal without any type of protectors on this thing um, was just... And, and the drinking age was 18. So <laughs> let's just put those two together for a Saturday night in the in the print shop and you've got a really really potential problem but um, my professor who I loved dearly and became a lifelong friend I think he must have taken a paper making workshop that's all I can think of because I wasn't really paying attention at the time and he I just remember him coming in all excited about making paper Mm -hmm. and I was a diligent art student. I think like most art students, we just love being in the studio. You don't have to course us. So I'm always right. in there and I'm kind of a, a, a rat, you know, studio rat. And I remember him taking a back room, which was kind of a storage space and turning it into this paper making spot with our garbage disposal. And we were just ripping up um printmaking paper, you know, the leftover from prints and throwing them through this disposal and it would come out mush and we would make sheets of paper. It was so basic. It was even basic. It gives basic a bad name, right? (laughs) And then we were cooking um, fibers. I think cattails found their way in there. We had no idea what we were doing. Again, he took a workshop and I just picked up on it. Frankly, I was a poor college student and the idea of getting free paper Attracted me. I mean, this seems kind of crazy. So, instead of buying a sheet of paper, I spent ten hours making it. Right, That's brilliant, right? But I enjoyed it, and I was just getting my hands in this pulp and making a mess, and just really loving this idea. And of course, now I start throwing fibers into the paper, and and then I started trying to print on it with with varying degrees of success and failures, as you would imagine. And mm-hmm what have you. But the paper was just there for me to put something else on. It was the background. It was white or close to it. Whatever colored papers we had ended up being the color of the paper I made, you know? So there wasn't a lot of, there was almost no scientific background to this at all.
0: Right. And were you, uh, how were you drying it? Was it flat or just air dried
1: or (laughs) yeah? I don't even know. (laughs) It was probably all sorts of a mix of mistakes. For example, we probably threw it onto tabletops only to realize it's the tabletop isn't completely clean. It's going to be permanent. I'm sure we made every mistake in the book. Mm -hmm. And because there was no formal education, we didn't even have a paper-making class. It was just something we're doing in concert with some other uh, printmaking class. There was just all sorts of bad ideas floating around, but nobody really cared. And there was no, um, you know, there was, again, there was no formal education here. So I'm sure we tried putting in between linters, uh, cotton, not the cotton linters we would use for paper making, but for print, for printmaking, you have blotters. Blotters, Thank you. We probably were using blotters and.
0: Yeah, you were making it up as you went. That's cool. We were making it up
1: as we went, yeah.
0: Yes. And so then I know you uh, discovered the
1: women's studio workshops. So. Yes. So I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off there, but yes. Yeah, so what happened was probably I was so engrossed in this and just, I'm sure that my other professor who I loved dearly, her name was Rose Imhoff. She, I remember her saying her saying to me one day, can you come see me? And I said, sure. And we get in her office. She says, there's this place called the Women's Studio Workshop, and it's this new, new organization. It's run by two women I met this weekend, and they're in Roslindale, New York, and one's name is Annie, or Anne, and one's Tanya. And they're trying to really make a go of this thing. This is in 1983, 1982. We're talking a few years ago now yeah and they need an intern they're, They they told me at this workshop I was at or summit some, some event she was at that weekend they're looking for an intern and I thought of you so this comes at me <laughs> right out of the blue I, I had not applied I'm sure now to, to get to be an intern at this women's studio you'd have to apply for those who don't know the women's studio workshop it's a organization it's a nonprofit organization largely for women that started in Rosendale, New York, probably in the late 1970s or around 1980, by two women, Anne Kalmbach and Tanya um, Kelnurva. She was from Czechoslovakia, and I say that because we used to we couldn't we used to call her Tanya the Czechoslovakian. You might want to, but anyway, um, and they met together. They went to school together at, uh, at uh, RIT, right, right. Rochester Institute of Technology, I remember that because they just graduated, frankly, a few years earlier. They met there in grad school and they started this nonprofit studio for women. And so when they first started it, it was in this old Victorian house. And then while I was there as an apprentice, I was living in the attic of this Victorian house, which happened to be the paper making studio. Mm-hmm. So I would wake up sometimes and people would be literally 10 feet from my head making paper. (laughs) So (laughs) thus began my uh, pension for getting up very early in the morning. And so, but while I was there, I was earning three college, or I'm sorry, I was learning, not earning nine college credits. So three classes worth. And one was in printmaking, one was in papermaking, and one was in a silk screen and the printmaking really was book arts. I was very lucky because when I was there, Susan King, who was a wonderful bookmaker, a, a book artist, was there on a a, a grant, a scholarship. Mm-hmm. And she taught book arts that summer and I got to participate in that. And I ended up teaching book arts at the college level at Mass Art for several years based on that experience. So it was very fortunate. And, um, At any rate, so I spent the summer at the Women's Studio Workshop in this Victorian house. Mm. And at the time, they were building the new studio that is now the studio. If you went to the Women's Studio Workshop today, you would be going to the new building that we built that summer. It's called Mm. Binney Binney Water Tides. That's Mm -hmm. the new, Binney Water. And that's the building that they now use. And my fondest memory is we had to pour the cement floor Mm -hmm. which was apparently part of being an apprentice (laughs) so we got out the shovels and the trowels and we poured this floor and if anyone knows the cat skills in the summer it's really humid well the skies just opened up on us as we're pouring this floor Uh. and we're trying to capture back the cement it was just a mess but it was a lot of work Uh, It was a great experience for me. I met lifelong friends, and I think it really got me on the road to being a paper maker beyond just making paper for the background. What I mean is that because I slept in the paper making studio right next to the Hollander, of course I had hours on end all summer to experiment with pulps and colored pulps. And I started playing around with this idea of merging these different elements, collage elements, colors, and making art out of the paper. And I have to give Tanya the credit because she was doing these things as well. And I was just frankly copying and watching her.
0: Yeah, I was just gonna ask who who you were learning from. And do you know, I should interview Tanya and Anne, but do you know uh, who Tanya had learned
1: paper making from? I, I don't. I, I got the, if I remember correctly, she'd learned it from Rochester Institute of Technology. Okay. I think she had a class there. Mm-hmm. And um, she was just doing these wonderful little collage pieces. I think she ended up giving me a few, in fact, that mm-hmm. I still have. Um, but she really was the person who transitioned me from this garbage disposal thing to a real hollander beater and pigmenting the pulp and using it as the medium and she does beautiful work for anyone who knows tanya's work yeah and that i would have to say that transition happened there
0: right okay and so then did you have did you go back to college or were you finished? And then- yes,
1: I went back for my senior year and then I became an art teacher in Syracuse. And my second internship was with Margie Huto from Syracuse University. She was the chair of the ceramics department. It was a very different experience because Margie, that summer after I graduated, I was actually between uh, graduating and going to Mass Art for my master's in Boston, Mass College of Art. She was designing the subway mural for the World Trade Center in New York. She was a ceramist, and I helped her work on that, and it survived 9-11. Wow. So I had this wonderful bookend experience of of Tanya and Ann at the Women's Studio, which was a nonprofit, very energetic people, very devoted to this mission. And on the other hand, I had Margie, who was a very successful, commercially successful artist. Both of them, Margie was also a paper maker. She was a pulp painter as well. Mm. So I was able to bookend these somewhat very different experiences, but, but really helped me merge my ideas of how much work was it going to take to be successful and how to organize myself for commercial success. And I really have to say both of those experiences proved.
0: Right. Now, now because we are similar age, and I'm, I I love what you said at the beginning, that you think your parents mm-hmm. being involved in business influenced mm-hmm. this. Um, my parents were both highly educated. Uh, my mother was a homemaker, though. And, uh, you know, they wanted me to go to college, but they never talked about <laughs> what are you going to do later? I think they just <laughs> thought I would marry someone who would take care of me. Was mm-hmm. there discussion in your house, you know, of okay, you what are you going to do? How are you going to make
1: money? Oddly, no. Which okay, is very okay. strange. Because so you just, they were pretty. Again, they were rather I mean, from business family, pretty conservative, very conservative in their thought process along those lines. Okay, okay. I've always. That way, like, wow, they kind of backed off on me. Maybe they thought, well, she's just too kind of flaky anyway, that why bother with this conversation? I don't know, but I've often thought about that, like, gee, I'm surprised they didn't sit me down and try to straighten me out on this one, but they didn't.
0: Well, mine didn't either. I think it's generational, a big part of it, yeah.
1: Oh, did they think I, I think, like you say, they probably assumed I'd get married and somebody else would figure this out for me. I think that's (laughs) fair to say. And, of course, that, that was not my plan at all. Okay. Um, and I do remember my dad saying to me once, as a, something that stuck in my mind, he said, you want to be an artist, you just don't want to be a poor, starving artist. Like, he was kind of figured out. I said, yeah, I, th- I think that's fair to uh-huh, say. Uh-huh. But I don't think I even understood how much his business acumen helped me Until I got out of college and graduate school and wanted to be a commercially successful artist with no, um, at this time, 1989, there was no hope anywhere as there is now. I mean, as you know, I work with a a, a coach, an art business coach. Right. um, Allison Stanfield from Art Biz Success. But in 1989, that wasn't happening. Right anywhere yeah. art schools taught you nothing about business to bring up the subject of business could be tricky because there was a lot of philosophy that commerce and creativity should not be merged together margie helped a lot because she debunked that notion mm-hmm. she said really i'm i'm doing a, i'm enjoying this thoroughly so that helped a lot
0: hmm
1: and the women's studio, even for a nonprofit, were making their works for to sell to keep themselves afloat. So, right. ultimately, these these counter experiences from the academic uh, tenet were very important. But there was no help as far as those little pieces that I'm putting together from based on my experience.
0: Okay, so did you? Um I think you did some teaching, and I don't know if you still do. Did you get any sort of degree in teaching? And then let's get into your work pretty soon here.
1: Sure, sure. I was going to say, yeah. Um, I have three degrees. I have a BFA in studio, an MFA in studio from uh, Massachusetts College of Art in Boston, and I have a PhD in education. And my PhD in education came about because after I graduated from MassArt in studio, I wanted to be a college professor. I wanted to merge college teaching with studio work, which is very common for artists. Mm -hmm. And that summer, uh, I was looking for jobs, you know, and and it was hard to get, as they always are. And one job came up teaching art history, which I didn't know anything about art history. But... Luckily the job came up the night before school started, <laughs> so they were kind of desperate. Right. And so when I showed up, the, the chair had little uh you know he was kind of stuck. He said, Well, I have to hire you because we're starting in about twenty-four <laughs> hours. So I started teaching art history and once I started art history, they started hiring me to teach studio and art education. It was in teaching art history that my artwork really took off. Ah. And I really think it's because I started thinking about art history in terms of an artist and, and extrapolating historical works of art. And I noticed my artwork really started to blossom. And that propelled me to ask the question, what is it about teaching art history that can benefit a studio artist? And that became the subject of my doctoral dissertation oh so my dissertation and being called teaching for the aesthetic experience and i just realized that when you can converse about works of art as the maker or the viewer you can start to create a storyboard in your artwork for the viewer to engage in and i would i would summarize it by saying that's what my work has been like ever since
0: Uh uh-huh Okay, so um, so did you always have a studio and where were you working and how were you making paper?
1: Or sure, so paper? yes, so my balancing of that teaching experience in the studio, even as a grad student, I bought a Hollander beater.
0: Mm.
1: What kind? I, uh, uh, Lee McDonald, made by okay. made beater. <laughs> he's, he's now a professor at Nassar. Um, He made my beater. My husband and his friend, who's a welder, built me a wonderful press with a um, jack, a car jack. Thing's fabulous, though. No patent on it, but it really works great. But I have my Hollinger beater. And that was something that Margie, I would say both Margie and Tanya taught me. If you're going to be this thing, buy the equipment you need to be this thing. Right. So I have had that beater for 30 years, and it's never needed servicing, by the way um so i had my hollander beater then my first home studio was in the basement Mm -hmm. my second one was in a garage which when you live in new england that that has its um that has its limits lots of space heaters
0: yeah and then my
1: third one was in another basement but i i literally had a five gallon water jar you know for like a five gallon water and i put quarters in it for years i just always had it in my studio no matter what my studio was and literally just said someday that's going to be full and someday you're going to have a real studio and luckily my brother's an architect and he designed a studio for me that is a real paper studio i have vacuum table i have counters i have windows i have my hollander I have a beautiful working studio. You can see images of it on my website, but I have a beautiful studio.
0: Yeah, and your website is megblack.com.
1: That's correct,
0: yeah. Um, and so is that separate from your house?
1: It's separate from the house, but it's it's a separate on space the property. on the property. So that has worked well for me because, as you know, being a, with paper, the drying Mm-hmm. can is a big part of the process and so it's important for me to have the studio at my house i also i had two children so that was e- it was easier for for me but the big thing is for pulp painting it takes a lot of drying and so i have access to my studio 24 7 which has really been crucial for me putting on dryers and fans and i had i can't imagine if i had to drive 10 miles every time i had a change of felt that would have been too much
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting how we uh, mm-hmm. figure yeah. out these systems. I used to, when my kids were little, my studio was in the garage behind my house, but now I'm driving. So I just have to yeah. schedule yeah. the way that I yeah, go and come right. and try not to leave anything there. So I have to That's right. Yes. Actually yesterday I had to turn around cause I forgot to close the window. Yeah. I was glad I remembered. Um, anyways, so let's talk about your pulp paintings and maybe take me through the process of sure. of one of your pieces.
1: Sure. So, you know, j- what I'm emphasizing here, this is, this is a long journey. Oh, and I, yeah. I, I would just want to, you know, anybody listening to this to just remind them this is one step at a time. And if it sounds like this was just a nice... <laughs> clean trajectory no there's ups and downs and there was times when I thought what was I thinking you know why wasn't I a dental hygienist where I could have just been you know safely employed nine to five and come home so I just want to emphasize that there's there's a trajectory of this but as I'm I always wanted to be a working artist Mm -hmm. from the minute I got into that high school class that was my dream and all these pieces just helped me reach that dream that learning to the garbage disposal and then Tanya and then Margie and then grad school and then my studio. And all while I'm doing this, I'm just evolving my process of trying to figure out how to apply pigmented pulp to a poured sheet of pulp so that there was a, um, the medium would become the message, so that that pulp would do the talking for me. The first few years were a disaster in retrospect, in that just trying to get the pulp to retain color,
0: Mm -hmm. was
1: a, now when I think back, that probably took me really three, four years. Sure, um, fade tests, and what combination of cotton, abaca, and how long did it need to be beaten for it to hold the pigment? I am not a paper scientist I'll, I'll emphasize that. I know some of your other guests have have really studied the properties of different fibers. I really didn't do that. I settled on pound of cotton, half a pound of abaca, and let's how long do I need to beat it to make this thing work and then overbeaten abaca has become a real um, painting media for me. What we mean by that is pound of abaca, beat it for about twenty hours. It very slurry-like, and you add terora or formationate to it and pigment, and it becomes this wonderful um, gelatinous material that you can use to paint with. And it dries wonderful, although it shrinks. So I've had to come up with all sorts of ways to prevent the shrinkage. mm mm-hmm. I've been doing, I'm realizing I could go on for hours about this. So I will just stop and say I have posted lots of videos on my website. On Thursdays, I'm IGTV live at 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time because it is very nuanced, the things I've discovered in 30 years. Let's go back to the abaca. Abaca is a wonderful material, but when you overbeat it, it shrinks. Yeah. So, how do you prevent it from shrinking? There's two ways I've come up with. Pour my base sheet onto screening, which I have on my my website, mm-hmm. and then around the edge, I put overbeaten abaca in formation aid. Why? Because it will dry faster, and it will hold that sheet of uh-huh. cotton abaca down and prevent it from shrinking. Uh huh. Yeah. Right. It took me probably fifteen years to figure that out, but now <laughs> yeah. it's golden. So if if anybody who's trying to a now if I wanted to make a wall relief, which is kind of flowing uh sheets of paper that are making kind of like a whimsical design, I take wax paper, I with push pins, push pin it down to a piece of, of um cardboard or gator board or, or um foam core. Uh-huh. Pour the abaca onto it now the abaca is in formation aid and pva glue and it dries beautifully Mm. it doesn't shrink at all because the the push pins will prevent it Mm -hmm. peel it right off you have a beautiful strong piece of paper that's almost translucent wow beautiful but all of these things are just trial and error trial and error so you know um how do I make rocks? Because I'm doing a lot of seascapes. Mm-hmm. Rocks are pebbly. I combine, I take cotton abaca mix, um, drain it, so it's there's no water in it. Add the pigment. Okay. At that add, point, at after that you've point, drained it. Uh-huh. Add the pigment, which is going to marble it a little bit. Add kind of heavy mix of retention aid. Mix it all up drain it again, and pour it in water, pebble. Mm -hmm. And if you do that with 10 different colors, you have 10 different pebbles for your rocks, and they're fabulous. So, again, I've just realized I have so much knowledge after 30 years, 30 more? Yeah. Don't go there, okay? Don't (laughs) add it up. But I just... About a year ago, I started working with Allison on a more regular basis, Allison Stanfield. In yeah, this- and
0: this is where how we connected,
1: I think, yes. because
0: I work with Allison too. Yes. She's a business coach. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: so Allison's a business coach. And I felt like after all these years, actually, the business of art had changed so much because of the internet. Again, 1989, we didn't even have an internet. Right. So I was just sending slides to people. Mm-hmm. I was driving in my car with my artwork in the back seat and just knocking on the doors of galleries, literally. Mm-hmm. And I went to galleries doing that. I don't think you could do that. Right. Um, but things changed so much that I decided to work with Allison on a more regular basis. And I realized over the past year, I have accumulated a lot of knowledge as a pulp painter, a mm-hmm. lot. And I said, it's time to share it. hmm so I have been doing the IGTV live. I've been um, posting much more uh, regularly on my blog, and just sharing my process because I figure someone said to me a few years ago. She said, "What's going to happen when you're gone? Mm-hmm. Who's going to know this?" Right. And then she got me thinking. I thought I, she's right. I don't. I will share any of the things I've learned. I've sh- I'll share all my knowledge. I think that's what learning is you know, sharing what you know and and watching other people take it somewhere else. Right, and
0: I have a question about that because I've never seen you, I'm quite active in the national and international paper groups. And I, have you attended those ever or, because those are, that would be a place to in-person sort of network. So I was thinking at the beginning of your career, Mm -hmm. you could have seen what other people were doing, but I love that you just have developed your own techniques. I'm not saying anything negative. I, oh, no, no, no. I, mean. I understand because. This and is, then yeah, giving
1: yeah. back to that would be another network. Mm-hmm. And I think it was working with Allison that really got me thinking about that. Uh-huh. Um, mm-hmm. because you know, I've raised two children. I'm teaching college. I'm, um, applying for grants on, uh, for other academic purposes. I'm, I'm giving lectures about the, the connection between art and art history. And then it dawned on me, wow, you've also got this piece that you could be sharing that other people would really want to hear about. So in the past year, I've joined the North American hand uh, papermakers. Paper makers. Mm-hmm. I've reached back out to Ann and Tanya at the Women's Studio Workshop. Mm-hmm. I've started to apply to teach my craft at different um, locales. Oh, cool. And um, Yeah, so I realized that there's this person in Boston, me, who has accumulated all this knowledge and would love to share it. So I would love to have more outlets to share my knowledge. And I'm hoping that, um, you know, somebody listening would be happy to contact me. Awesome. Um, Yeah, and one thing I did, speaking of contacting me, is... um, I've been blogging a lot more. Again, part of my work with Alice to mm-hmm. not, not so much on Instagram, but always on my blog as well. So I'm drawing people to my website and in the process it got picked up by the cultural office of the state department. And I've been invited now to exhibit my work in the U S embassy in Belgrade. So, it works. (laughs) You know, uh, it it does help to keep that consistency going. And sooner or later, people will start to find you. Hey,
0: listeners, let's take a little break here. And I want to tell you about the paper advisor, a place where you can discover my most popular papermaking and papercraft resources, including information about tools and supplies, how to videos and paper tips all in one place. You can also ask the paper advisor your paper questions. And best of all, it's free. Find the paper advisor by going to helenhebertstudio.com and looking for the free paper advisor link in the upper right-hand corner. Now back to the episode.
1: So are you teaching full-time now? I'm... No, I'm te- I was teaching full time for a few years. Okay. And we've dropped the program, which is fine. So now I'm, I'm only teaching a few art history classes a year because I love the topic, but I'm in my studio. I'm Oh, nice. I'm working in my studio. Mm-hmm.
0: Right, and you've always sold your work. You said you went to galleries, you've knocked yes. on doors first, and uh, I think you're still represented by some of those galleries yes, or new that's, ones. That's and correct. then you do commissions as well, and I'm curious how you get those commissions. And then I know there's a lot of issues with the uh, the fear of paper, the permanence of paper that I'd love to hear your Perfect. take on.
1: Yes, very good. So again, my my goal was to be a commercially successful artist. And so I started right out of grad school, driving, literally driving my paintings to the Cape, Cape Cod, to Maine, to Syracuse, and knocking on the doors of galleries. And they were so intrigued by the process, by the surface. The word texture is always used to, uh, people love the texture of my work. And the subject matter was recognizable, it was representational, seascapes, gardens, landscapes. So it, was, it, it had a commercial appeal. And I got into galleries, frankly, pretty easily on mm-hmm. that. It was a niche. For an artist who wants to be commercially successful, there, a niche helps. Yeah. A niche, whether it's a um, medium or a size or something you're doing, but that little niche will really help, or niche, if you want to use that term. Um, and mine was the, the material and mm-hmm. that textured surface that I was creating these paintings with pulp. So at one point, I, was fidel- I had an art a gallery in Boston, which I still do. Um, it's called Latitude Gallery. I also show through Boston Art. And I showed through a few art consultants up and down the Eastern Seaboard primarily and then out in the West Coast. So I'll explain that in a minute. But I learned pretty quickly that it was that niche that the pulp was, a, was grabbing people because they loved what I was doing. And as you suggest, it was also a bit of a throwback because they were afraid of the, long, the, the permanence of the material, which, again, if you go on my website, you'll see how I've addressed this over and over again. Um so I was at one point the art consultants were selling my work so well I became Fidelity Investment's most collected artists. Wow. They bought eighty-five of them.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Um and I was again just channeling my parents, like, okay, what would my dad have done? Okay. I had no idea what I was doing on some level. There was nobody telling me how to market art. Mm -hmm. I was looking for opportunities instead of letting them find me. I think Mm -hmm. that's very important. Yes. If a building was going to be built, I figured they needed, they had walls. And I would reach out to the contractors.
0: Wow.
1: Um, I did that with my town hall. We were building a new town hall. And I reached out to the descendants of a collector who had just passed away. Would they want to commission me in her memory for a painting for the town hall?
0: Were you on Allison's podcast talking yeah. about this? Okay, yeah. so there's we'll put a link in the show notes yeah. to that because that's a fascinating yeah. story. Yeah.
1: Yes. And it's a great story of how to find an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Because they're not gonna come to you. Right. I've published catalogs of my work and sent them uh, to to potential collectors and art Consultants. Um, a patron of mine years ago was the CEO of a, um, a hospice. So when they built new hospices, mm-hmm. I would say, oh, you know, I'd like to be in this collection. They were having a fundraiser for this hospice. And so I don't donate my work typically, but my dad had died and we'd use hospice. So I offered to... Donate this painting for this fundraiser in his name. And let me tell you, I marketed this thing from soup to nuts. I made videos, I posted, I blogged, I did interviews, and they raised for this one painting $25,000. Wow. They got for the painting. Nice. Yes. That's wonderful. And of course, I went to the big reception. Mm-hmm. And this was a great way for me to network with people. So I think anyone wanting to be a commercial artist, I would strongly suggest you work with an art business coach, an art business coach, because it is a different trajectory than a business coach. There's the art world is very different. And there's things that you, that person can help you with that people outside the art world cannot help you with. And it's, I've really enjoyed working with Allison uh, Stanfield at Art Success very much. But find opportunities. Um, like I said, when I was an intern at Women's Student Workshop, I poured the cement floor. If you're a young person,
0: mm-hmm.
1: there's your test. Are you willing to pour a cement floor? Right. Are you willing to scrub that floor? Because that's what you're going to need to do. And... and you're an earshot of people who have a lot to teach you, but you're going that to me was was really important to say, I'm willing to, to pour your cement floor if you'll teach me something. So I have to say that's just a really important thing to be willing to do.
0: Absolutely. You have to, it's it's work. Being an artist is work. <laughs> it's work. <laughs> and it's there's work. many brains you have to many parts of your brain you need to use if you yes. want to sell your
1: work. Yes. Mm-hmm. When Margie hired me, she kind of apologized. She said, well, I, I can only pay you $5 an hour. Mm-hmm. I said, that's okay, but can I sit next to you when the art consultants come in and take notes? She said, sure, that's fine. Mm-hmm. So that right. was a bargain. So at every time an art consultant came in, I would just pull my chair up and take notes. And that was, that was fine. And I learned a lot doing that. Right. Um, but I would just... And then you have to develop your craft, yes and again that niche and keep pushing your craft it's very tempting in the art world to get to the, the shiny objects where somebody comes along with this new idea and you think oh why didn't I do that or you know I'm just going to change everything I do and do that and I've done it a few times mm-hmm. I've, <laughs> I've taken out a whole new voice for about two weeks and then thought okay I'm, I'm done with that. but just keep developing your craft I would say find that find that niche even if your niche is a subject or a process or an approach, but I distinguish yourself somehow um, and then keep pushing it. And eventually it will work for you, but keep, keep at it, find opportunities, Um, get out there in public, go to other people's opening receptions. Mm -hmm. Um, I get a grant now every year from the state of Massachusetts to give lectures at our town library. They're not for much money, but it gives me something to blog about. It gives me something to get out in public about. I, had, I usually have prints made of my work. And in mm-hmm. the case of the town hall painting, we had prints made in memory uh, for a nonprofit. The, the proceeds go to a nonprofit in memory of the mother of this, these descendants. Mm-hmm. So that gets my work out all over town for people who want to support that nonprofit. And that, now you're on somebody's wall and there's your signature and they become, they're now on your mailing list and they come to your lecture. So there's so many different things you can do. And, and notice I haven't even mentioned uploading to Facebook yet. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there's just, um, as a paper maker, I'm sure, I know you do this, I make handmade paper stationery and put, you know, flowers from my garden in there and send thank yous to people or just bundle them up and a little with a ribbon and send those to to collectors and hate thinking of you. It is a lot of work. It is a lot of work. But I figure for every hundred attempts I make, you might call it, I might get three um, sales, let's just say, or Mm -hmm. three opportunities but I figure every hundred it takes a hundred right and I'll add this to this day I am still calling our consultants cold calling, Mm -hmm. and figuring you know I have my elevator introduction Mm -hmm. and I don't want to just spam them with email I figure I'm this is who I am this is what I have this is what I can send you would you let me send you an email with my work right and i've probably called 47 art consultants in the past three months and have six new people who are interested in my work for commercial spaces by doing that it takes a lot of guts and a lot of m m's (laughs) (laughs) phone call m m phone call treat yourself but that's how i do it which is circling back to the putting the art in the backseat of the car.
0: Right. Yeah. You, you have to put yourself out there. People aren't just going to come to you, but I do think so. So let's uh, let's wind up with the story about the, so you're writing on your blog more now. And when you put, so that's a different way of putting yourself out there, social media. Yes. Um, So who read that and how did this cultural
1: Right, so Edison. what happened, I had no, I'd never in my wildest dreams was that going to be an opportunity, but I, in concert with my, working with Allison, blog, 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 blog. So you're not just throwing your stuff onto another platform, you're pulling. It's people yours. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was blogging about this painting I'm working on. It's a seascape painting of Cape Ann, which is um, North excuse me, of Boston. Most people are familiar with Cape Cod, but this mm-hmm. is Cape Ann, which is okay. the North Shore. It's a very rocky shore. It's a beautiful, beautiful environment. And so I'm, I came up through my, um, really through my PhD more, the idea of philosophy and the art of philosophy, the philosophy of art rather. And I saw this metaphor of these rocks and water of my own journey as an artist. You know, rocks are so tough, mm-hmm. The water can crash against them, and a good New England storm can move those formations all over. And I, that's really life, you know. The water is smooth, but boy, don't upset her because she will come at you. And the mm-hmm. rocks can be resilient, but they don't have as much. It's a push and pull of life, you know. So I don't want to have the rocks against the the water. But I just saw that metaphor of that working yeah. with but against. So I've been blogging about that metaphor of resilience and, and life's journey. And what happened was the cultural office of the State Department was notified by the ambassador to Belgrade that they want to have an exhibition of American seascape painters in the embassy in Belgrade for the year two of 2021. And would she and her office pulled together some samples of American seascape painters. So this was not a pulp painter or a paper maker. This was the subject of seascapes. Right. right. And she starts her office starts probably Googling American seascape art, and it came up, and that was that diligence of blogging. Mm-hmm. And she sent the blogs to the embassy, to the ambassador, and, and he and his wife said, oh, we'd love that painting. And I think it was not just the subject, but it was the story yeah. of the American seascape and the rocks and water and the metaphor and the resilience. It just had a narrative to it that the blogging brought to them, to the, to the content of the, of the art. And so I am now going to be exhibiting in the embassy and i will be uh, in the catalog and on the state department website and this will just open up a whole new audience for me and again i never spent 10 seconds in all my marketing ideas some crazy some you know uh, beneficial never did i think this one was coming up and so it just it was just a fluke in fact i i read the email about five times before (laughs) i actually thought it was actually real real
0: Yeah. yeah yeah that's
1: a real email from these people from the State Department. So very exciting. Very very excited about this.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. And I think um, having a presence online is such an interesting thing. Maybe for you and me, who we started out with no internet, and now it's and now we're kind of. I feel like a dinosaur when like my kids oh. can do anything on the computer. I'm like. I think I know you should be able to do that, but I don't know how to do it. I know. Anyways, um, but but the story piece, Mm -hmm. that's really, I think that's something that can really work online because if somebody finds you and then just starts digging in, Mm -hmm. watching your Instagram stories, learning your process, reading your blog. I mean, Mm -hmm. I have people tell me they feel like we're friends and I've never Mm -hmm. met them. Just because of the what they've read that I write, so it's a really good marketing tool.
1: Yes, and I have to say, your blog, your Sunday paint uh, paper, is really how we met, and I am okay. I'm so impressed that every <laughs> Sunday it's in my inbox, and it's got so many links and so many people involved. It's really a gift to the papermaking community, and I know you put a lot of time into it, Helen. And uh, on behalf of everyone in this community, I just want to thank you for your hard work, and you've really been a great resource for us. So, oh, thank you. Well, it's really fun
0: uh, for me to put it together, and I I love so many aspects of paper. So it's a place where I can you do kind of you it it pull it all together. together. Yeah, <laughs> it, you
1: do. You love it. Yeah, I, I, your your lampshades just blow me <laughs> out. Yeah, just just the lampshade. Yeah.
0: Well. Um, so let's just wind up, tell okay. everyone where they can find you online and we'll put these this information in the show notes
1: too, that people can Thank visit. you. Thank you. yes yeah, So I am on Instagram and Facebook as Meg Black Studios and I do post, I try to post every day and then on I do IGTV live on Thursdays at four o'clock and I, I, it's only like 10, 15 minutes. I try to just focus in on one thing I'm doing. Um, so this week I, I'm going to be focusing in on, I, I think it is the rocks and water, how to do the rocks, you know, how to do the pebbly look for the rocks, I believe, but you'll have to check. And then of course those go on to IG, uh, the, vid, the TV, so they become permanent. Um, right.
0: This won't come out for a couple of months. So this will be, th- right. that will be there then.
1: Yeah, right, right. Yeah. So Whatever I'm working on, I just turn on the camera for like 10 minutes. Uh-huh. And again, I I would love to have my name out there more, if you don't mind me using your platform to say that, no, as a pulp painter, because I feel like, boy, I really have a lot to share here. And I'm happy to share it. And um, I would like to, you know, to do that, because... It's, it would be sad to spend all this time and just sort of take it with me, you know? So I'm trying to be more um, available through our, our communication, through our, through our outlets, through our platforms. Yeah. So I do a lot of videos. I upload them to my um, website, and you know, a lot of them process videos. I try to walk people through the process, and I'm happy to share anything. And I'm happy to do workshops, give workshops. Uh, I've always asked to give workshops in my studio. One thing I do when people buy the prints, I put their name in a hat and then they can win a workshop with me. And Mm -hmm. I give it once a year and five people win the workshop and they love it. Oh. So, yeah.
0: So so you do a workshop once a year at least. Do you do other workshops in your studio?
1: I probably will. Mm -hmm. And I'm happy to. I, I, um, you know, sometimes you can you offer them, and then it, it, things you know life yeah. gets in the way. I'm sure you we've all had, especially with COVID. You know, nice. obviously it's been yeah. kind of yeah. tricky. But I'm probably going to start offering more in 2021, and just see what happens. I've had people from as far away as Bermuda tell me they'd come to a workshop. So we'll see. You know, we'll see what happens. But I'm happy to to entertain the idea. That's for sure.
0: Yeah, I bet if you plant the seed and do the marketing,
1: the people <laughs> will come. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that yeah. probably will happen. Yeah. So well, that's my, my next adventure is, like I said, to just become more public with my process uh-huh. and share it with people who want to learn.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing here. And I look forward to sharing this with listeners. And um, it's great getting to know you,
1: Meg. Thank you, Helen. This was fun.
0: Hey, paper friends, did you know that I write a weekly blog called The Sunday Paper, featuring stories of people doing exciting, innovative, and beautiful things with paper? Sign up at HelenHebertStudio.com blog. I'm also creating a lot of content over here, and the best way to stay up to date is to join my newsletter list to learn about free tutorials, online classes, workshops, and the annual Red Cliff Paper Retreat, which takes place right here at Helen Hebert Studio. You can sign up at HelenHebertStudio.com to receive my e-newsletter. This wraps up our episode, and if you enjoyed it, I'd appreciate it if you could leave a review over on iTunes. This helps other people find out about the podcast. Special thanks to Gary A. Hansen for the sound editing and Peter Thomas for the music. Visit HelenHebertStudio.com and click on Paper Talk, where you can find out more about them, Subscribe to the series via iTunes and listen to other episodes and access all of the archived shows. I'll talk to you soon.